I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. The article we're going to discuss today is called Historical President. What I wanted to talk about today was that anecdotally, I feel like I've had more conversations in my entire career about recessions. Everybody's asking about a recession. And out of curiosity, I went to Google Trends, which is a fun little exercise. If you just want to search Google Trends, you can look up a particular word and you can see how that has trended over time from search history. You can go geographically and go by state, by country, uh, however you want to do it. So I looked up the word recession and sure enough, uh, it matched my assumption that it has peaked in search trending going all the way back to 2004. The summer of this year was the highest uh, level searches for the word recession. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it is brought up a lot. Financial headlines, you'll hear it often. You know, are we going into a recession? Are we in a recession? Is it going to look different? Uh, I've heard the term, you know, white collar recession, not blue collar, meaning that it won't necessarily be high employment, everyone losing their jobs, but more uh, financial assets and investments are losing value. But then I try to remind people that. You know, S&P 500's down pretty big this year, and uh, I don't think people believe it, you know? Yeah, I, I thought it's interesting, too, when you look at Google Trends, they do put these, like, markers of, saying notes of, like, when they updated their software or something like that. But what I'm most curious about is if recession is trending more this year than it ever has, and this includes 2008 and 2009, I don't know if there's just more people using the internet or or I just don't understand how there could be more anxiety today than when we had a 50% drawdown peak to trough in 2008. That's a good point. I, I wonder, uh, <laughs> that conversation comes up a lot when people bring up like dot-com bubble and things like that. And I look at internet usage then, it, it, you know, not everyone had smartphones in their pocket where they're tweeting, or I don't know if I say, where they're posting things on certain apps, but now I feel like it's a lot easier to look up a word or a topic or write about it or read about it. So that, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I didn't think about you saying that the rise of the iPhone probably has a big impact on that. And then also, I've been thinking a lot lately of just how in your face social media is. Because I remember going back to the COVID moment, right? That 36% mm -hmm. drawdown in March of 2020. I remember every day there was a discussion on financial news on what shape the recovery would be. Do you yeah, remember that? Yeah, J-curve, yeah, or, or no, K. Or, yeah, will it be, you know, will it be look like uh, all these different things? V-shaped v recovery right. or uh, K-shaped. K yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just kind of this obsession of trying to predict tomorrow. And it reminds me a little bit, because you and I both love watching football. I don't know if they do it on, is it Sunday night football or Monday night where – they kind of go to all the different sportscasters and they make the prediction of who's going to win and they kind of show their records. Mm -hmm. We just have this obsession of like, hey, what's going to be behind door number two? Yeah, we, we love guessing and being right. Uh, and But then I think sometimes people put a little bit too much weight into uh, the predictions, whether it's an economist or a talking head or whoever it might be. So here's my question for you. So there's obviously an, an obsession right now with this searching of recession. But do you think people really care about the health of the economy or where we are in the business cycle? Because that's what the word recession would mean, right? Yeah, I was thinking about it when I was reading the article. Because wasn't there a little bit of controversy about the change of the definition of recession this year? Because, uh, you know, that we had 
there was like a true recession and then the White House was like, no, this doesn't count. And Well, no, I don't. That's a good question. I don't know the particulars on it. So we're used to this um, traditional definition of two negative quarters of GDP being the definition of a recession. Mm -hmm. Um, But the National Bureau of Economic Research is the body that actually deciphers whether we were in a recession. And that's kind of one of the points that I make here is that I think people forget that the stock market is not the economy. And uh, this disconnect between if there's an announced recession, how the stock market will behave. And I know I've said this on a few podcasts, but people have to remember the stock market is a leading indicator of telling you where the economy is going to go. And the definition of a recession would be in hindsight. So there's a huge disconnect on on what you would do. It's a non-actionable thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And actually, I'm glad you have this chart uh, because you can actually see when it was trending earlier in the summer. And I think that that was that time frame. I think this time it's more, it's just a, a common theme that's being talked about, you know, especially as uh, midterms come up and it, there has to be some sort of noise, something to be talked about in the news cycle. And I think recession and midterms are just easy buttons to push. And the point I was trying to get to, too, and I wonder if you agree, is that I don't think people really care about the economy. I I think it's really personal. I think they care about their own employment, which employment's good right now. So I I don't think that's a high concern. So what do they really care about? I think they care about their portfolio. Yeah, well, they they probably just remember, well, last time we had one of these recessions, my portfolio went down 40%. Yeah, so that was what my reminder was. As you referenced earlier, as of yesterday, the S&P 500 was down something like 21% on the year. So I was trying to get across, you've already gotten punched in the face. If you're an index investor, you've already felt, felt that blow. So what I wanted to do is a lot of conversations I've had with people, they're saying things like, oh, if a recession's announced, I guess the assumption would be that we go down another 25% from here. And that's where I'm challenging people, where I, I don't really want to get into the weeds, but I'm just saying, hey, let's just take a timeout. And, and I, I mentioned this in the article. If we were in a courtroom and we were a jury, what would we use? Evidence. If we were uh, employers and we were interviewing a candidate, what would we do? We'd look at their past behavior to show some sort of connection to the role we're trying to hire for. So what we should really do is look at the evidence that the stock market presents and then also look at the past behavior of the stock market, not to try to make some sort of prediction, but at least to give us context to say, hey, are our fears valid? So what I did is I took 85 years of S&P market data And I took the five worst, or actually the four worst years. The reason I picked the number four is I was looking at any year that was worse than a 20% drawdown. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we're in a 20% drawdown right now. So that was 1937, 1974, 2002, and 2008. When you had read up to that part in the article, did you have an idea of what I was going to mention next? No. No, that's the funny part is that I I like that you included later in the article uh, that I'll let you finish it. Oh, go ahead. No, because it, you, you have to tell the rest of the story, right? Because if you just look at years in a, in a vacuum, it's pretty easy to identify those opportunities. And uh, not to go off on a tangent, uh, I'll have a, you go back to it when you talk about the following years. But I think that the COVID moment, it kind of uh, has disrupted investor behavior for the negative two because they think it's really easy to say like, oh, I've seen this movie before. I'm going to go to cash. Things are going to get worse. And then I'm going to deploy money and be able to get a quick, large return in a short period of time. But I don't think people understand that that's not normal. Uh, the 
the market swinging that fast in a three to six month period is, is not typical. Yeah, I don't remember the quote, but it's something to the, the extent that uh, the market's goal is to make everyone look foolish. Yeah. Uh, so if you think you know the answer to the test or you know the next chapter, uh, that's when markets will surprise you, which is why I'm not using this example as uh, of saying, hey, here, I'm going to make an absolute prediction. I'm saying, hey, here's 85 years of data. Here's the four worst years that would probably have the most similarity just in a percentage uh, drawdown as where we are today. Okay. Now, what we don't know today is we don't know what the results are in 2023. But the great thing is we do know what the results are in the following years of all these different uh, unfortunate years in the stock market. So uh, we looked at 1937, 1974, 2002, and 2008. So all I did on the very next page, or sorry, it's not the next page on a, uh, on, oh, yeah, on a computer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> next page of my printout. Um, all I did was I looked at 1938, 1975, and 2003, and 2009. And here's the returns. In 1938, the market was up nearly 30%. In 1975, the market was up 37%. In 2003, the market was up 28%. In 2009, the market was up nearly 26%. So I'm saying, if we go to the courtroom and we look at past behavior, the appropriate assumption would be that 2023 should be an attractive year. Now, again, I'm not making a claim that that's 100% true. I'm saying that's what history would lead you to believe. Yeah, it, it's funny. I found myself saying a lot, um, I wouldn't be surprised if this happened. And uh, I'm learning that people don't like that because it's, uh, it's, I guess, a cop out because they want me to say, so you think this will happen? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised if it did. <laughs> and uh, that that's when I was reading this, that's what it reminded me of. I wouldn't be surprised if next year is a better year for markets. Because if this year is going to finish down, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And that's where I think you have to use logic, right? If somebody comes to you with a sports statistic and says, hey, games that are played on uh, Mondays when the weather is X and the starting quarterback is uh, third year in the league, this is usually what the outcome is. You'd be like, well, there's not correlation there. Um, what, what the correlation we're seeing here is that markets tend to overreact. And again, I'm somebody who loves analogies and I love like images. So what I was thinking about, and I don't know if I've used this on a podcast before, but I was thinking about what if there was a scale, you know, those old school school scales that had like, they weren't digital, right? They had the needle. Yeah. Um, and, and I was thinking, what if I jumped on this scale and I didn't break it? Let's assume I didn't break it. And you're watching me jump on the scale in like one frame at a time, right? What's going to happen? The, as soon as I hit the scale and I make impact, that needle is going to go through the roof. It's going to go to a weight. That's much more than I actually weigh, mm -hmm. right? But again, we're watching it one frame at a time. We actually know what's going to happen once you know things settle and the the initial impact is gone. It's going to show me my actual weight, and that's what markets do. Uh, they get this blow to the face. They overreact one way or another, but ultimately, over time, they are a weighing machine. And, and the reason I'm using that image is there's this famous quote from. Uh, um, Warren Buffett's teacher, Benjamin Graham, where he basically said, in the short run, markets are a voting machine. And in the long run, they're a weighing machine. Now, that doesn't always uh, hit somebody to their core where they're like, I fully understand what that means. What he's saying is that opinions have a lot to do in the short run and fundamentals have a lot to do in the long run. Or another quote you might have heard in markets is, uh, buy the rumor, sell the news. 
And what they're saying there is by the time something hits the news, the market already knew it. So if, if you want to feel momentum one direction or the other, you want to buy the rumor um, because the rumor is going to send markets uh, uh, more in one direction or the other than the actual fundamental news that comes out. Yeah, you know what's interesting is uh, the, the most impactful news, it seems like, is uh, the Jerome Powell press conferences where like every time everything he says is taken one way or another and either he's more hawkish or hawkish, more hawkish than expected and it sends the market – uh, in different directions. It's it's pretty interesting because most things, like you said, is have already been already been priced in. It's not a true surprise, and that's where um, can be difficult for people is they don't realize that there's two different types of market participants. So, what are most of our investors? Long term investors, mm. but then there's short term speculators that are participating in the market too, and that's where that noise can get confusing for Signal because those folks are trying to figure out ways to make short term profits. And there are algorithms and computers trading immediately by the second based on a particular word that Jerome Powell might use. And that's why in a past article, I was trying to encourage people, your time horizon is your edge. Mm -hmm. Meaning if you're a long-term investor and you can act like one, that's a huge edge you have. Because most long-term investors get distracted by short-term speculators and start making behavior that doesn't match their long time horizon. Well, yeah, that, that's the elephant in the room is all this is kind of a uh, nonsense because if you're worried about this year or next year or the year after, you, you shouldn't be invested in stocks to begin with. But most of our clients are long-term investors and, and need to be reminded of that sometimes. And that's where I took the article where every Bonson Group article should conclude um, the gospel we're trying to preach, and that's dividend growth. Yeah. And what I was trying to say with, hey, here's the reason we use dividend growth is because I know investing is a mental game. And I know the psychology of it is a huge factor. So one of the benefits of dividend growth is it can help you to shift your focus away from stock prices to the income production of the stocks, or what we like to call the businesses that you actually own. And the analogy I made there is I don't think for most of our listeners that they're waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety about what their home is worth because their primary objective with their home that they live in is the benefits of living in the home, right? So they're not distracted by the day-to-day moves of the price of their home. Now, um, there's also not like a clear market, but they could go on Zillow every day and look at that. Uh, Hopefully people aren't because they're not planning on selling their home. So what I'm saying is, can you take that same paradigm, apply it to investing and say, hey, I'm really planning to own these businesses forever to pass them down to the next generation. So I'm going to shift my focus away from the day-to-day movements and price and really look at the growth of the income that these actual businesses produce. Yeah, if you're, if you're expecting you know, stocks to give you a 7 to 9% return over time, um, it's a much easier glide path to take more than half of that return up front in the dividend and uh, a growing dividend uh, at that. And it is a powerful concept that if you aren't taking the income from the portfolio now, which is a great solution because you're taking all the dividends and interest and you're not spending down the principal, but if you're letting it reinvest into more shares during good times and bad times, it's the best way to, in my opinion, to best one of the best ways to compound and grow. Yeah, I was talking to an advisor recently that doesn't work at the Bonson Group. And one of the things that I was telling him is... We have provided, I mean, David wrote a book on it, right? The Case for Dividend Growth. So we've provided what 
we believe to be strong evidence to show um, why this is a, a preferred method for investing versus index investing. But what I was telling him, even if the total return outcome wasn't better, the the actual mechanics of it and the psychology for helping someone stick to the plan and how it intersects with the financial plan, it is superior. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the the big thing that we're trying to solve for and again, this is an article I've written in the past and something we can mention in the future, but there's this idea of sequence of returns risk. There's a risk if the sequence of your returns come in unfavorable multiple years in a row. Let me put some color to that. If we're saying that the index is down somewhere in the range of 20% this year, right? And somebody planned to withdraw 5% from their portfolio. Well, if I had $100, and now it's worth 80 and I still want to withdraw that same $5, it's a different percentage of $80 than it is of $100. Now I'm taking greater than the 5% plan. Again, over podcasts, that might not be super easy to understand, but imagine if markets are unfavorable another year and then another year. That, that compounding negative return while you're taking withdrawals and having to sell securities to meet that withdrawal that can cause a lot of issues in a financial plan. And that's why we're arguing for this idea that dividend growth, if you can build a financial plan where the dividends alone satiate your lifestyle or your expenses, it's a way to kind of build a moat around your portfolio. Um, and we would say is a preferred method for financial planning. Try to be careful about all the words I use on how I describe this. Uh, yeah, I know. I- and we wouldn't use uh, such a shameless plug unless we really believed in it. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I had one thought earlier, too, when you were talking about um, uh, looking at the market and kind of using common sense to think about the ebbs and flows of the overreaction. It reminded me of those heat maps that we see for different asset classes. And this might be kind of too much in the weeds, but they, they make these charts that show um, each asset class, whether it's, you know, emerging markets or real estate or small cap or mid cap. And it's pretty interesting to see during periods of time, which which ones are the top performers and then the worst performers. And you can almost see there's no real pattern to be able to bet or guess on the future, but it is uh, sometimes the patterns do show themselves in hindsight. We go, oh, emerging markets was the best performing. Then it was the worst performing for two years, but then it was the best performing for two years. And so it's pretty interesting to see. Now, I don't know how I was going to tie that in, but I just it reminded me of that when you were talking about it earlier. I think it does tie in because we talked about in the article this idea of how I like to describe markets, right? two steps forward and one step back or two step backwards and three steps forward or or, or whatever you want to describe it. Um, It is the premium that you're looking for. You're looking for a return. You're not going to get a a premium return if the behavior of markets was linear. You get it because they are volatile. And you have to understand, like when you're talking about that heat map and something being the, the best asset class, you know, three years in a row or something like that, what ends up happening there is that becomes a larger attribution of the market. So we know that energy had a, a difficult decade and we saw energy drop from something being like 10% of the, the total market as a sector to something like 3%. So the ultimate thing is if that keeps happening, right, it, it would almost be like a sector disappears or it almost be like a sector would be, you know, 50% of, of the total market. And that's where um, I like the the work that Michael Mobison's done on on base rates, because what he talks about is, hey, if the stock price of this high flying company is this, 
then that is assuming that they're going to grow at this rate. That's the only way you get that stock price. So now let's run that. Let's assume they grow at that rate over you know, a 10-year period. Then they would do something a company's never done before, and then they would be you know, 40% of the index. So what he's saying there is, oh, that's actually almost a way to identify a bubble because there could be money to be made there in that particular company, but you would just be speculating in a game of hot potato because if you did an actual like discounted cash flow, this company is never going to be able to grow into that particular valuation. I'm remembering when we did this example with like a movie theater company and it was like they had to sell out every single movie theater forever and every person going to the movies had to spend $200 at the concession stand to justify the stock price. And <laughs> it kind of makes me laugh that you go, oh, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Oh, I love that. You brought that up. I remember that podcast because you were talking about um, there was one of those social media applications where they were bidding up prices yeah. of uh, different meme stocks. And one went through the roof and an analyst actually did the valuation. He's like, oh, OK, this value, like you described, exactly. that's so funny. This works if everybody in the world bought a movie ticket tomorrow. And, and I remember reading it. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, that's probably not going to happen. And then it was like. Each of those people have to spend over $200 in like popcorn. I'm like, okay, well, no, it's really not going to happen. But the stock price still stayed up for a while. So Yeah, and that's where you have to decide is am I signing up? What name tag am I choosing? Am I going to put a name tag on that says speculator or am I putting a name tag on that says investor? Those are two very different things. Where people get in trouble is where investors start to speculate or right. when speculators start to try to be investors. And you said it well earlier. There's an edge for being a long-term investor and not a uh, short-term speculator day trader. Yeah, and um, I closed out the article with this idea of spilt milk because um, it's something we say in our family a lot uh, to kind of stop ourselves from really dwelling on something that happened. And in our house, sometimes it's actually spilt milk. You know, even right before this podcast, um, I've had a little bit of cough, and I was like, oh, Sean, just give me five minutes. I'm going to get some tea real quick because some hot tea during this podcast would, would be really nice to make sure I don't have a, a coughing attack. Uh, and sure enough, I poured the tea and I was squeezing the uh, honey in and the top fell off and all the honey went in my tea. You can't even blame your kids. No, I can't <laughs> blame my kids. So I was like, I just poured it out and I was like, hey, I, I got a podcast to get to. So the, the spilt milk analogy here uh, or idiom, it, it's this idea that you need to be really careful on how much you dwell on the past. Because I know the focal point that people are talking about is this recession in the future, but what they're really talking about is that they're really bummed on how the market's performed thus far. And what can be troubling is sometimes if you focus too much on that spilt milk, uh, you can find yourself making changes to your playbook. And those changes to the playbook are often not favorable for you in the long run. And that's where I'm like, oh no, a long-term investor is making a speculative decision and they're going to regret that. And they're going to go through that cycle of spilt milk over and over again. Yeah, that's why the long-term investment plan is the most important part because in the short term, we, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen. So you encouraging them to stick with the plan. And then if things do get worse before they get better, uh, it, it just increases that person's anxiety. And, that, and there might be resentment. They, they might be like, I knew this was going to happen. I told you. And then you're sitting there like, well, but that's not the point. <laughs> you have to stick with the plan. Yeah, and it makes me curious. If we weren't around, I don't know what the answer would be, but if we're here in Newport Beach. If we went out right now and we interviewed 100 people and we asked a simple question, for the stock market, will 2023 be better or worse than 2022? What do you think most people would say? I think people would say worse. Because, I think people would say worse too. Because they just 
feel the negative headlines and they feel the negativity now and they're just oh, it must just always continue to get worse. And what I'm about to say means nothing, but I would say better. Uh, and I, w- I wouldn't say better because I'm, I'm looking at all the economic data and making some sort of conclusion. I would say better because I feel like that's how markets calibrate um, is they, they sway really hard one way and then they have a tendency to, to try to correct and find, uh, you know, recalibration. And if I look over 85 years and I look at four years just from a return standpoint that feel and look like this year, and I look at all the other years after that, and they all have something in common that they were sizable outperformance. Again, I'm not making a claim about 2023, but I'm saying if I was surveyed, I would lean towards better. I would say better because I'm a delusional optimist. I love delusional optimists. I think, of course, it's going to be a great day and it's going to be better. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's that'll bring us full circle back to because I ended the article with that. Um, I would be the same as you. I'd be hopeful. I'd be optimistic. And I'd be thinking the best. And if markets didn't deliver uh, something that would uh, excite me, what would I do? I'd refocus back on my dividends. And for me, in the stage of accumulation, I'd be like, great. I'm going to reinvest my di- the volatility. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to reinvest my dividends at lower prices. Uh, if I was retired, I'd be like, whew. I'm glad the dividends cover my lifestyle, and I don't have to be obsessive about stock prices. So, uh, again, the overarching theme here is investing is a mental game. So much of it's psychology. So a lot of it is trying to reframe your paradigm and perspective to something that I think will help you make healthy investor behavior. Nodding your head. Yep. Looking at right. me. And yeah. Now I'm going to the camera. Now, yeah, exactly. the camera. now they know. Um, so at this point, we'll ask you to rate the podcast. Uh, five stars are preferred. Uh, any comments are welcome. Easy way to get a hold of Trevor or Sean is this email, tom at thebonsergroup.com. That's tom at thebonsergroup.com. Um, and of course, we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.